This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law, who uh, is back with us this week. We missed you last week, but we're so glad um, folks now have uh, degrees of higher education and lower education and every kind of education in your family now. Yes, Liz, it's been a busy, uh, busy summer. I know you had some graduations and I had uh, three of them. And uh, but it was all good. And Yiddish, we talk about nachas, which is real happiness when you've got people in your family doing uh, great things and you're proud of them. So I have lots of nachas. Well, and so does Andre Degree. We were just talking about his nachas with all of his successful kids and uh, growing them up and how well they're doing. Andre is from the State Public Defender's Office, and we're so glad that you're here with us today. Thank you, Liz. Good to be here. Well, what Andre does is so important, Liz. I mean, you think about uh, what happened with the case of Gideon versus Wainwright so many years ago when the Supreme Court established the fact that indigent defendants have a right to counsel, uh, even in cases that are not capital offenses. And so that's how really the public defender system was created. And Andre is the state public defender and has been involved in public service since 2001. So it's great to have him on the show. Andre, I I know this has been a big year for indigent defense reform. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Well, um, you, know, you, you mentioned Gideon versus Wainwright. Um, we have been for for a very long time working with. We've had a public defender task force in Mississippi that has been working on looking at the indigent defense system and, and trying to come up with a plan to improve Mississippi to meet that uh, requirement of Gideon v. Rain, Wainwright, which was 1963. Um, we, we had some hopes that um, we would have been much further along by now. It's, it's been, um, you know, I was born in 1964, and it seems like I've been working on indigent defense reform since then. Um, we, we did get a couple of reports that came out in 2018 that I think have really put us on track for coming up with a system in the state that, uh, that everyone... Um, you know, everyone can buy into. Uh, it's it is not a perfect system, but uh, or a perfect plan. But I think that uh, all of the stakeholders will uh, have have come to some agreement, and now we're just at the point of of getting to the legislature and explaining the plan, and and hopefully start moving this forward. Well, one of the problems seems to be that. Things change from county to county and how each county may implement public defense or uh, criminal prosecution. Um, Is there any way that that can be unified? Well, that was um, that's really what has we've been looking at for for decades now when uh, the response to Gideon was to uh, authorize judges to appoint counsel. Uh, They had been appointing in death penalty eligible cases before, but they gave the authority to judges to to make that appointment. 
uh, but there was little authority for the counties to actually establish public defender offices, which was happening all over the country. We, we created that, but Mississippi, you know, how we govern is uh, all the authority is in the legislature in Jackson and all the responsibility is out in the counties. And, and that has slowly changed with uh, we've seen it change some in education, but we've uh, in in the criminal justice system in the early 70s, we started state funding and or state organization for judges. Uh, you know, our circuit court judges are, are primarily funded. Their their salaries all come from the state. Those are the judges who handle our felony cases. And uh, district attorney offices were formed. Those were only formed back in the 70s, and they started out as a mix of part-time and full-time offices. Uh, so we went to this full-time professional prosecutor only in the uh, early 1970s. And we just left indigent defense to the counties, and, and not surprisingly, we ended up with 82 different uh, systems. And so we've, we've been making efforts to bring those systems under uh, some type of state umbrella. Uh, there was a, a wonderful effort that uh, passed the legislature in 1998 that would create a statewide system um, that was never funded and was uh, repealed about a year later. And uh, a lot of the reason for that was that it took too much authority away from local authorities. So what we've been trying to do really for the last 20 years was figure out how we balance the, the wants and needs of local judges, supervisors, funders in Jackson, uh, prosecutors, the people who are doing indigent defense, um, with all keeping an eye on the most important person the, and the person that's usually not at the table, the, the indigent defendant themselves. So uh, it's been a, a you know, as I said, a, a career for me, um, and, and we're not there yet, but I think we do have a good plan. Listeners, if you would like to call in, if you have a question or a comment about um, uh, public defenders, uh, Andre is also the director of the Capital Defense Council Division. We would love for you to call in, participate. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You could also send us an email to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Well, Andre, let's talk a little bit about who comes to your office. What What is uh, an indigent defendant? How does that de- define? Well, that's, that's one of the problems that we start with when we look out at the 82 counties. There, there is no standard, objective standard for uh, who is an indigent. Um, And so that falls to the local judge. Um, And so you have 57 circuit judges. You may have 57 different views on uh, whether or not someone can afford counsel. Uh, And indigency is is, uh, a question throughout the system. It, It 
when we're talking about who can pay a fine or a fee or an assessment, um, who can, you know, whether or not that person would go to jail for failing to pay an ordered fine. Um, you know, you look to indigency because we, we can't, under our Constitution, you can't send someone to prison for an inability to pay. You can only send them to prison for a refusal to pay. So um, we are beginning in the system to adopt what uh, what the civil system, what legal services adopted years ago, the federal poverty guidelines. And we'd say, well, if someone, that's an objective standard, this person, just based on their income and their assets, um, you can just look at it and, and basically a clerk can can ask a few questions and decide whether or not someone's indigent. And we're starting to have that uh, by either rule or, or changes in the statute come into other parts of the criminal justice system. Um, and, and that's one of the important things. We think uh, a state entity, uh, a commission that would oversee indigent defense, would set standards for uh, determining who is indigent. Uh, it, it really, if a judge decides that a person is could afford counsel and sends them out to try to find counsel, and they come back and still can't find counsel, um, what that just has delayed the case, and so it hasn't. Uh, you know, and conversely, what we see with a lot of public defender offices where you have someone on contract or they're on salary, so it doesn't cost the the county more money to give them the public defender. They may be people who should be hiring their uh, their own lawyer, but the judge has just given them the public defender. All right. Well, it's time for us to take our first break of the show. We have our guest, Andre Degree, who's from the State Public Defender's Office. If you have questions about the laws concerning getting assistance um, with the criminal justice system, we'd love for you to call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 1- 877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Why should you even care what happens to people in our criminal justice system? We're going to tell you after the break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB public media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Why should you care about our criminal justice system? Well, because Mississippi spends over $300 million dollars annually on our cash strapped 
state to support an overly large prison session prison system. This morning we are talking about the criminal justice system with our guest Andre Degree, and we do have a caller. Let's go to Charles in Independence. Charles, thanks for calling into In Legal Terms. Go ahead. I'm calling in reference to uh, a form that can be filed with the court, and it is called um, Right to Proceed as a Poor Person. Are you familiar with that? It, it, what type of case is this that, uh, you know, so it, it's different if you're um, if you're proceeding in a civil case versus a criminal case. Um, different if you're in, you know, we, we actually have uh, some right to counsel services in um in youth court in child welfare cases now that's a a new addition to our office and really a new thing to the state so is it a criminal case or a a civil case it was in another state that i uh, came across it and it was um maybe it was going to be a probate case okay um yeah that I just didn't know if it had any, you know, crossover or what they were actually referring to when they had that right as a poor person. Well, there, in that would be a civil case. Um, there are um, certain court fees, uh, filing fees, and things, and in in a lot of cases. Um, so, if you're going to file something in uh, a chancery court in Mississippi, a civil matter, uh, you certainly would want to ask about uh, whether or not you can file as a pauper in former pauperis um, because you would be able to uh, file without filing fees. Um, in the criminal case, you're drug, you're drug into the system. So, um, you know, it's, dis- it's paupers or the, the uh, predominant number of defendants. So the question just becomes whether or not you will get a lawyer or whether or not you can be jailed for not paying back fees in the criminal context. Okay, that makes some sense to me. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Charles. We appreciate you calling in. If anyone else would love to participate in our show, that's why we're here. That's why Andre uh, traveled across town and we've got Professor Gershon, uh, through the magic of radio, uh, participating with us from Oxford, is so that you can give us a call at 1-877-672-7464 or email us legalterms at mpbonline.org. Well, you know, one thing that I think, Liz, people uh, want to know about is why, why does our system uh, appoint an attorney for someone who's a criminal uh, is probably the question. And I, I want to hear what Andre has to say about that. Right. Well, the first thing is that uh, at, the, at the point that uh, the public defender is, should be getting on the case, we don't know whether or not the person's a criminal. So we, we have to, uh, you know, they are a citizen accused or a person accused at that point. Um, but, it, you know, it's basically in our Constitution. So when, when our founding fathers... Uh, sat down to write the first constitution knowing what their uh, what their rights were in relation to the king and, and the things they didn't like they um, or things that they felt were people you couldn't be a, a full citizen without having certain rights and one of those rights was if you were brought into court you have the right to counsel now for most of our 
existence from 1791 until about, uh, I think it's 1932, while there were some places that did create a statutory right to counsel, it, uh, it was not recognized as a constitutional mandate until, um, I think it's the Scarlesboro case out of Alabama was the first case to get to the U.S. Supreme Court where the court said that a poor person cannot have their rights protected. Uh, they, they cannot go up against the government without the assistance of counsel. And so it's really about the, the overall fairness of the system. Um, we acknowledged at the beginning that, um, that you had the right to bring counsel with you if you could afford them. Um, but uh, that most people in the system are poor and there's no way they could hire a lawyer to represent them and we know that they can't get a fair proceeding so it, it's really a limit on the government so we're, we're talking about uh, funding people like me through the government and i spend all of my time fighting the government so it, it's uh you know it's one of the it's an irony, but it's one of the great things about our Constitution is that we as a democracy can can pay for lawyers to act independently of us and really go against us in court. And that's one. Uh, I had a good friend who was a, 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 a private uh, defense counsel in South Carolina, uh, and he represented some of the uh, people that were maybe some of the worst members of, of the community. And he would always say his job was to make sure that the prosecution played by the rules. And I think that's exactly right. Yeah. But, um, you know, there was been, uh, as we mentioned, a lot of talk about um, reform. And there were a couple of reports. And I, I would, uh, if you have a minute, would you talk a little bit about uh, the reports that looked at felony indigent defense system? Uh, there was one produced by the Sixth Amendment Center. Uh, who are they, and what did that report say? Right. So um, it, it came out last. It was published last March. Uh, it actually was published in uh, on uh, Gideon's Day. Uh, it was uh, the anniversary of Gideon versus Wainwright. It was commissioned by this Public Defender Task Force, but uh, the Sixth Amendment Center is an independent. Uh, research center and they go around the count the country uh, most of their funding is either private sources or uh, to do the Mississippi project it was a D US Department of Justice uh, grant that funded them the uh, public defender task force invited them to come in and ask them to look at how we delivered felony indigent, indigent defense services in Mississippi. Uh, and they published a very lengthy report. Um, that was um, the task force then took that report and the recommendations that uh, came from that report and started looking specifically at what we are doing in Mississippi and, and developed their plan of where we were, where we wanted to head in uh, Mississippi. Now, there was a second task force, and I appreciate knowing about the, the Sixth Amendment Center's task force, but you, you were also uh, part of the Mississippi task force, and I think Justice Kitchens uh, headed that task force, and... and he how did that report was that report similar to the the Sixth Amendment Center uh, report? Yeah, what the um, the sort of some of the delays in in the public the 
Mississippi task force in getting getting their report together. Um, they were uh, they've actually existed on and off since uh, 2000. Uh, the recommendations from some of their, their 2001 report were adopted in 2011, and that's what created this state public defender office now and, and reorganized some existing offices under uh, one umbrella. But that task force was reorganized uh, about four years ago. In 2014, they had uh, basically three tasks. Assess the needs uh, in the various counties to uh, look at what other states were doing and to develop this plan on on how we go forward. And um, so they are the ones actually responsible for bringing in the Sixth Amendment Center. And I think the idea was, uh, and, and you mentioned Justice Kitchens from the Supreme Court. He's the he was the chairman um, most recently in the last four years. At, at one point, uh, former Chief Justice Waller was chairman. Uh, Justice Graves had chaired at one time. So, uh, but the the last four years, the ones that produced this report um, that went to the legislature in 2019 and will be going back to the legislature in 2020, were was. Uh, uh, they they asked they wanted this independent body to come in and do the study um, so that to be to be objective rather than the people who are working in the system that exists trying to figure out to even see our own flaws and so that was the idea of bringing in the Sixth Amendment Center um, the Sixth Amendment Center didn't tell us what we should do they just told us what our system looked like made some suggestions based on what other courts did and and really the bulk of the research on what other states are doing came from the work that the sixth amendment center did but you know looking when taking that where we were and where other states were um, and start trying to develop a plan on what would work in Mississippi was really the hard work of the Mississippi task force, which included um, Judge Harrell, a, a circuit court judge appointee, a district attorney, um, a defense attorney, a representative from the Magnolia Bar, someone from the attorney general's office. Um, and my actual, I worked with them in, in the legislature uh, requires the public defender to work with the public defender task force, but we were really two separate entities. We and we worked together to try to um, develop this. Uh, I think I was the uh, minute taker more than anything else on a lot of these discussions. But we, um, you know, it, it was the task force was scheduled to sunset um, and in July, July one of. Uh, 2018. I think they would have liked to have continued to meet uh, the legislature in, in 18, had not gotten their report yet, but uh, allowed them to sunset. So they finished up their report in June, and, and I took that report to the legislature um, this last session. And, uh, and as I said, we're, it has not been adopted by the legislature, so we're, we're going to go back and uh, and work a little harder uh, with the new legislation legislature coming in in January. Well, we know we want you to keep up that good work. Uh, one question I have is that it, I know a lot of states are uh, restoring the rights of, of people who were convicted felons. Florida's just uh, been dealing with that. 
Um, where is Mississippi on that issue? That's a, that's a good question. We have, um, you know, at the State Defender, we're not actively involved uh, in, these, in, in that movement or that work. Uh, but we have been involved in the overall criminal justice reforms that Mississippi has been having since uh, been working on since 2013. I think the the question of restoration of rights is, is going to be before the next legislature. There are there are actually two lawsuits pending. One uh, was brought by the Mississippi Center for Justice. One was brought by the Southern Poverty Law Center. So the the state is being sued. Um, by people who have been uh, disenfranchised because of a felony conviction. So if you if you have a certain felony convictions, and I think the number is uh, they're 22 or some some number like that, and some of them are in the Constitution. Uh, others were added by the um, the attorney general's office that said they're they're similar to what's in the constitution. So, not every felony conviction and only a felony conviction can you lose your right to vote. But uh, not every felony conviction disenfranchises you. So the the two lawsuits are looking at that. These are people, many of them who were. Uh, convicted of something as very young people, maybe 18, 20 years old, and they've gone on and done their coaching Little League, they're, they're raising families, they've been working, but they, they're doing everything but voting in our society, paying lots of taxes, and they, they just can't vote. Um, and so the, some of the plaintiffs are people like that that are just saying, this is something I did years ago, and, it, and it's time for a fresh start, um, and, and I want to fully participate in the system. Um, you mentioned Florida. Florida, uh, by voter referendum, uh, restored the rights to a lot of the disenfranchised. And I really think that that's something that's moving. Um, I know um, before the last legislative session, the, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee had a, uh, a hearing where they heard from some of these plaintiffs and some of the lawyers bringing this suit. Um, and I know the House passed a, uh, a law to create a task force to look at how we could do uh, restoration of voter rights uh, in a more systematic way. Because right now, if you are uh, disenfranchised, you can't vote because of a felony conviction. The If you have done your time, you're, you're no longer under supervision, you, you've done paid all your fines, you could go to a judge and ask the judge to, I'm, I'm sorry, go to the legislature and ask the legislature to pass a bill that uh, basically gives you your right to vote back. Um, those are those happen. They've been brought up every year in the legislature for uh, for many many years, and but they're we're having we're seeing usually three or four people that actually get that bill passed. And and we have thousands of people who are disenfranchised, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of people disenfranchised, and we're a handful a year are getting their their voting rights back. I think uh, one of the encouraging things was the uh, while the task force to look at this didn't become law, 
and nothing obvious came out of the Senate's hearing, we had, I think, 16 restora uh, restoration of rights bills that passed uh, in the in the last legislative session and were signed by the governor so we, we have 16 people more than than the last four years combined so I think that that people are recognizing that uh, the, the right to vote is not something you should lose for the rest of your life because of a mistake you made as a young person um, and so so we're seeing progress there I have no idea what what the lawsuits might bring and what the but I, I know there are going to be a lot of people, and, and I tell people, you know, we certainly at the Public Defender's Office support movement on that. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not an issue that we're actively involved with. All right. We're talking with Andre Degree today about our criminal justice system. We hope you'll give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You could also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'd love to have some more calls and some emails. I, I think some people have said this should be a continuing education credit. <laughs> listening to in legal terms we do such a good job what's the reason you should care about how individuals in our prisons are treated we'll tell you when we come back from the break you're listening to in legal terms on mpb think radio Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, and we hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. There are so many different podcasting platforms. If you have an Android phone, <laughs> I happen to use Podcast Addict, there's Stitcher, there's Spotify, but I download it to my phone. I touch the plus that took me to a page. You could either search or browse, but if you search, you can type in in legal terms, and we're the only thing called in legal terms. It brings it up. You're able to touch the photo and subscribe, and then you can be notified when we have new episodes loaded up, which usually happens about the afternoon of a show. This morning, we're talking about our criminal justice system with our guest, Andre Degree, state defender and director of the Capital Defense Council. And why should you care about how people in prisons are treated? Well, because over 95% of the people currently incarcerated in our prisons will be reentering re-entering our communities at some point, and it's in our best interest to assist those released become protect, productive citizens of our state. Well, uh, Andre, we've uh, enjoyed having you here today. We've also got a call right now. We're going to go, well, and we're going to get a call in just a moment. We've been talking a little bit about the task force reports from uh, your organization, the Public Defenders Task Force, and how they have 
been making recommendations to the legislature. How, how will you approach, it's an election year, how will you approach the legislature, you know, come January? Well, I, I think that um, what we ran into in this last session was uh, uh, one thing was it was an election year and I've been around the legislature a long time. And if you tell anybody that you want to pl- you want try to get something passed, the first thing they tell you is it's an election year. Um, and, and this legislature that, that is just wrapping up its business has really shown that that doesn't matter. The last eight years, uh, we passed some, some positive things in an election year. Um, I think that what happened, um, the, the governor and, and leadership in the legislature got uh, – uh, decided they were going to pass some some more criminal justice reforms. Like I said, we we started working on the whole system back in 2013 and passed some really historic reforms in 14 that were all aimed at reducing prison populations and helping with uh, reentry, as you had referenced. And and uh, I've been at every opportunity telling people, you know, if, if you don't have um, good counsel on the front end, it, you're, you're really never going to solve the problem. We really need to, that part of criminal justice reform is indigent defense reform. And what we ran into uh, was um, a lot of good ideas. Uh, of course, I think my idea was the best idea and should have been the first uh, first thing considered. And, and really, we were pleased when a poll came out that uh that showed most Mississippians thought indigent defense should be at the top of the list. Um, but what happened was we there were some other issues, particularly um, dealing with intervention courts, the old moving uh, expanding from just drug courts to mental health courts. And and so there, there was significant criminal justice reform that was passed in this session. And, and if you spend any time at the legislature that, you know, they're doing part time legislators dealing with a lot of issues over a very short period period of time and uh, and we just could not get um, ours pushed to uh, far enough up on the agenda to be uh, to be considered and we were uh, and we were asking for four million dollars we weren't uh, claiming we were going to save four million dollars so that that made it more difficult in an election year but I, i'm i'm excited about the idea we're going to have a new governor uh we're going to have a new um and, and it's people we all know and have been they've all are very familiar with the uh, all the candidates are familiar with the criminal justice system so uh kind of know I, I think we're expecting no matter who gets elected they're going to we're going to continue on the the bipartisan road you know maybe the only bipartisan road that's been running in Mississippi is is on criminal justice reform. So we feel good about that. Uh, the We're going to have a lot of changes in the Senate. Uh, the, the lieutenant governor is going to be new, and who the committee's chairman, you know, we, we don't know who those are going to be. So uh, I'm not I'm not overly hopeful that we're going to pass something in, in uh, 2020 just because it's going to be new to a lot of people. Um, but but we feel good. I think that the uh, the speaker is uh, we we had a lot of conversations with his office this 
this session and and uh, it's something he he wants to look at and talk about and see how we can do this better because one of one of the big things we're talking about doing is this is this isn't an optional government service this is a constitutional mandate and everyone so even people who might not want to provide this service have to provide it and those people tend to say well if i'm going to do it i'm going to do it in the most efficient effective way and and that's really what we're talking about this reorganization um so that we're not we're not wasting public money and um that we're we're doing what we have to do in the most efficient and effective way. And, of course, we hope all candidates uh, listen to Mississippi Public Broadcasting. (laughs) All right, we have a call. Let's go to Mary in Wayne County. Mary, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. You're on the air. Please go ahead. Yes, I would like to speak about my experience in working with offenders um, I would like for um, the um, leader to know that public offenders that I've experienced, they their offices are in storefronts, they are closed, their hours are unknown, they don't have a phone, some in the offices, and they have cell phones. The offenders are unable to reach their uh, public helper because they don't know the hours. They may not know the location. They are closed. Maybe they're in there one day a week or at certain times. Um, They don't have a phone in the office and when they do have phones, their secretary may or may not take the calls. It's just like um, they're just not interested in following up with the offenders. There's not, I'm not for certain, but I'm going to say there's little, if, little if any, investigation done, limited money perhaps. They don't investigate. They don't talk to anyone. They don't go to the, the, um, the scene of the incident. Um, um, they seem to, to um, favor the state. Uh, and, and encourage the individuals to take a plea. Um, and oftentimes, if you if you you know that that's just fifty uh, fifty. If you're not guilty, why take a plea? Um, and the jury is is biased against the in, uh, indigent. Um, the jury does not consist if they go to court of their peers. Would you comment on this, please? Yes, I'd be happy to, Mary. And I just want to tell everybody, I did not ask Mary to call. Um, <laughs> this is this is Mary's experience is exactly what um, we spent thousands of dollars or the federal government spent thousands of dollars having people come down and sit in courtrooms and talk to prosecutors and talk to defense lawyers and talk to defendants and talk to judges. This is what they learned that in in what what Mary's talking about is the indigent defense system that is available in most counties in Mississippi. There they Sometimes they call this a part-time public defender, but it's not really a public defender at all. There is no office. Um, what it is is they, that 
Mo- we have a few counties. There, there are basically three ways to provide services. They, you either the judge appoints on an individual case, and and the county has to pay an hourly rate. Uh, we know that's the most expensive, um, the most, the least efficient way of doing it, and, uh, and that's why very few counties still do it that way. Um, you know, there there's a role for that in in some limited cases, but that shouldn't be your primary delivery system. And then we have full time offices. Um, and, and that's there's a statute that provides for that, allows counties to set that up. In our 82 counties, we have eight full-time offices, and four of those have opened in the last four years. Um, the vast majority of counties provide, they, they will, the judge appoints someone to be the public defender. They, they get a monthly uh, fee and... You know, these are part-time jobs. They have private practice, and uh, you know these aren't these aren't bad guys who don't care. I, I don't. You know, they, there may be some out there, but I think most of them really do care. But just on what they're being paid for this contract and the and the lack of oversight, the lack of uh, support. None of them have investigators. They have to go to the court and ask for an investigator, and and the judge isn't inclined to give extra money. He's already set up the contract. So that that's really, if you go to the Sixth Amendment Center report, um, that's one of the things they they recognize is that these that the the defendant, if he's out, doesn't know where his lawyer's office is. It's often in another county, and it's in a private law office. And they're not going to come. They're not. They don't want their public defender com- clients necessarily walking in. Um, so I, I understand that there are probably some who don't uh, share that information. Um, but then, when they're not uh, when they're not in a term of court, they don't can consider themselves acting as a public defender. So they're not down at the jail seeing who's in the jail. And often they're not notified of who's in the jail. So we have that other problem of of people sitting in jail who don't know who represents them. Maybe they're not even represented. Um, And and that's the whole goal of of what the task force wants to do is to set up some, uh, some independent agency at the state level to set standards. And, And that means this is, everybody could look to these standards and say, this is what my lawyer should be doing. And, have a place where if that's not happening you can contact them and say this lawyer's not doing what uh what i what they should do um and part of that and what we hope would develop into the majority of uh, uh indigent defense representation would be and i mentioned the four million dollars it would be to have the state defender hire district defenders uh we don't believe that uh, that you can run an indigent defense system from Jackson. I think there needs to be uh, people out in the area uh, working on the, what the system there would look like. But uh, so so the plan would be to put a district defender in each district, and so if you're in Wayne County you can contact that district defender and find out where your lawyer is. Um, and hopefully the Wayne County, rather than contracting, they would want to uh, contract with the district defender so that person might actually be in that office. 
Um, and and it, it's not unique to Wayne County. It, it's really the majority of counties across the state that have problems that uh, Mary talked about. Mary, we appreciate you uh, painting a picture for us of, of what it's like. We're going to take our last break of the show. We are with our guest, Andre Degree, and Professor Richard Gershon. We're going to get back to him when we come back from the break. Uh, but we hope you'll send us your questions, legal terms, at mpbonline.org. And how does Mississippi fit in with incarceration rates? We'll let you know after the break. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. on MPB Think Radio. for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash In Legal Terms. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. And we, we get, you know, this is a digital age. We get our podcast numbers. So we know when you listen to our podcasts. So we appreciate it when you subscribe and, and click to give a listen to our wonderful guests that we try to bring you each week. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. The prison rates in the U.S. are the highest in the world and at uh, 724 people per 100,000 people. And Mississippi has the third highest rate as a state. So there you go. And we're talking today with Andre Degree from the State uh, Capital Defense Council and Defender's Office. Yeah, as we have this discussion with Andre, it's so great to have him here. I just think you know, there are people who are passionate about the First Amendment and Second Amendment, and I just wish people were more passionate about the Sixth Amendment, which is also part of our Constitution that guarantees right to counsel. And Andre has raised some really important issues about how uh, the resources of our state are not used effectively at this time uh, to, to assure that right to counsel, which is a, a constitutional right. And so, Andre, where do you go from here? Um, well, I, I think that coming on shows like this and trying to educate people on these issues and talking about these issues, I also serve on a lot of task forces and, and uh, you know, they, they sometimes get tired of me bringing the discussion always back to the Sixth Amendment or the Eighth Amendment. I think, you know, when we talk about it in the context of uh, overcrowded jails and overcrowded prisons, uh, there's good research out there. We know if a person can't get out of jail on on bail or on their own recognizance, preferably, um, they are more likely to be convicted. They're, of course, more likely to need a public defender. 
and and so that puts that burden on the system and and when they get convicted they're more likely to serve a longer sentence than someone who was able to get out on bail so it, it's both sixth and eighth amendment uh, you know we think of the eighth amendment in the context of the death penalty but the eighth amendment also covers uh, bail and fines and fees so when you start looking at those uh, those amendments together they are they really when you don't respect them you you end up with uh what what we call mass incarceration well and unfortunately we won't have time to get to another topic that uh we hope to cover which was the civil rights commission uh testimony uh but in the two minutes that we have left could you talk a little bit about uh, racial disparities and and prosecution yeah what what um the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights Mississippi Committee has uh, taken on the task of looking at the role of uh, prosecu- prosecutorial discretion. Um, the, it's looked at as a driver of our, our prison population. Uh, prosecutors have a lot of discretion, and and the Civil Rights Commission is, is concerned about, are they using that discretion, the racial disparities that are obvious obviously in the system are they are they driven in part by the uh, by prosecutor discretion and and so I, w- I was invited to sit on a panel of lawyers talking about uh, the role of prosecutors and prosecutorial discretion and basically what we've seen and we've looked at we've looked specifically for racial disparities and, and what might be causing some of that and uh, and published a report uh, about a year or so ago that looked at the areas of the criminal justice system that that have the greatest racial disparity, but limiting it to where prosecutor discretion came in, we were looking at the drug cases, and you know, two thirds of the people going into these diversion programs are are white, and the majority of people going into prison for the same offense are black, and so we're we're. Um, really appreciative that the, the uh, commission is starting to look at this and they're talking to a lot of different people not just me but uh, we're uh, we, it's a problem we have in our society and Mississippi certainly needs to address that maybe we can have that as a whole other show and we, have you back uh, come back anytime Andre Degree thank you so much for being here today thank you that's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms our call screener today has been Lisa Lancaster and our board engineer in Jackson has been Jay White we're excited to have all of our help in Oxford, and we uh, uh, thank our group up there for helping us, uh, Scott DeVelve. Uh, so for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi, I'm Liz Gill. Thanks for listening tonight. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.